about 9 p.m. And then the rest of the week's going to be sitting in the low 60s with partly cloudy weather. It is 2.06 and time for Planet Watch. And welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, fish. To be specific, trout and salmon. And how one program's efforts to restore them here in California could be a model for other endangered species. We'll talk with Ben Harris, executive director of the Monterey Bay Salmon and Trout Project, about how to bring a species back from extinction. Hint. It is not easy to do. We'll talk to him in just a moment after the news. But first... We have a podcast. You can subscribe at website planetwatchradio.com and never have to miss a show. And we, um, you also can reach us uh, and our guest live uh, during the show today or reach us in between shows uh, by emailing radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Or you can go on Facebook and just enter the words Planet Watch Radio. We'd also like to thank Michael Zwirling for sponsoring Planet Watch Radio. Indeed. And Tommy Martin's here with a story about the latest in the Poland meeting about climate change. Yeah. The UN climate change negotiations in Poland came to an end this weekend with key agreements on how countries will measure, report, and verify the emissions cuts they promised to make in the 2015 Paris Agreement. The lack of transparency and accountability was one of the key criticisms of the original plan. Despite these enforcement agreements, other arguments were left for next year's meeting, such as the countries like Brazil, <laughs> sorry, such as what countries like Brazil should get in carbon, carbon credit for their existing rainforests, which act as carbon sinks. Other disputes left for the C COP25 in 2019 included how countries would move beyond these goals which only keep us at an estimated 3 degrees Celsius of warming. A recent study conducted by 13 federal agencies predicted remaining on this track would be devastating not only to the environment, but also the world economy. While these agreements are a good first step to monitoring how the Paris Accord is achieving its goals, it is important to remember that state and local governments can go above and beyond these targets. California, for example, plans to reach zero net carbon emissions by 2045. Thank you for that story. And in other news, uh, Zinke is out and uh, Bernhardt is in, and they're both coal lobbyists, so it doesn't really change the equation at the uh, various top environmental agencies, the top two, that is, the Interior Department and the EPA. So we have coal lobbyists at the top of both of those. They're both acting directors because the previous directors left before they could be investigated and probably sent to jail, thus draining the swamp not. Uh, we'll be following that in future Planet Watches, but uh, first, scientists at Lawrence Livermore Lab have identified a connection between the loss of Arctic sea ice and a reduction in California's rainfall. These seemingly disconnected events have been linked. Earlier studies suggested that California's drought has a human-made component arising from increased temperatures. However, this new study, which used simulations, showed that the loss of Arctic sea ice cover, lo loss of Arctic sea ice cover drives the formation of a high-pressure ridge 
You remember the ridiculously resilient ridge? Well, that was partly to blame for... Well, it wasn't to blame. It was to blame for our drought, but the sea ice being reduced actually caused some of this. They've now found, including the, the resilient ridge that was there from 2012 to 2016, which basically pushed away a lot of big wet storm systems away from the state of California. In a two-step process, sea ice changes lead to reorganization of tropical convection that in turn triggers the creation of this high-pressure ridge systems over the northern Pacific, resulting in significant drying over the state of California. This research suggests that substantial loss of Arctic sea ice cover is highly likely to have significant and far-field effects such as on the rainfall, which we're lucky to be getting right now, but it does have a very bizarre chain reaction that no one would have thought sea ice so far from here would actually have an impact. And if you live in the East Coast and are listening to this show right now, how does this affect me, you might ask? Well, do you like lettuce, <laughs> strawberries, broccoli? Let's see, what else grows here? Artichokes, asparagus. The, the list goes on. You, you really do want... California to get the right amount of rain because uh, we don't have enough water just to use irrigation alone. We rely on rainfall for a lot of our agriculture crops as well. Yeah, a key factor in how all that works that Rachel was describing is the uh, so-called positive feedback loop where if you lose ice cover, well, the ice is shiny and white and reflective and keeps the earth reasonably cool. As the ice shrinks, you get very dark, you know, dark bluish black open ocean and that absorbs sunlight which then heats the ice around the edges and then you lose even more ice and then you absorb even more sunlight with the increased still further range of dark water and so it can become a runaway uh, phenomenon which then feeds into the atmospheric dynamics that Rachel was just describing leading to the RRR ridiculously resistant ridge of high pressure off California. It's a, it's a very interesting chain reaction they've discovered, and um, they said something about anticyclonic effects. Does that just mean high pressure? Yeah, high. Okay. Uh, lows, are, lows are cyclonic. Cyclones. <laughs> Cyclones. So an anticyclone is not just a cyclone that spins in the opposite direction. I've got that now. It's important <laughs> to understand your scientific terms. And speaking of science, um, science is awesome, and that's what we celebrate here on Planet Watch and how it informs us about how nature is doing and uh, today our guest ben harris knows a lot about nature partly because he was born in the state of west virginia and uh, grew up trout fishing and a very old piece of writing that i found um, i had a book about golly mountain and what it used to be like in the mountains of west virginia and some of the early stories say that you could almost walk across these streams on the backs of fish they were so thick in there um that you could literally just scoop them out, you know, with your hands. So I don't know if you ever saw that because you're too young, but this was like they're talking about the turn of the last century and all the way up into the 50s, the 1950s. Um, things were like that there. And then, you know, you have mining and things like that. Here in California, we had logging. And um, so my guest, who I haven't given his name yet, his name is Ben Harris. And he recently studied fisheries up in Arcata. He got his degree, master's in science at West Virginia University. 
and has done his thesis research on uh, tagging brook trout. So he's kind of spent his life around fish, and he's currently the executive director of the Monterey Bay Salmon and Trout Project here in Santa Cruz County as their first executive director. So we're really happy to have him as our guest. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's kind of a long way to say, hey, you love fish, don't you? I do, yeah. It's you love a, catching them and eating them and saving them. I do, yeah. So, I mean, it's it can be, you can be an ethical sportsman. You can enjoy the resource and also want to conserve it. Yeah, that's how I like to fit in. So, let's ask you if you could give us a synopsis of how are salmon doing in this world of high industrialization? Uh, that's a that's a big question. I think uh, salmon in general are are having a tough time adapting to a lot of the changes we make as a species, um, and that could be you know over the past couple centuries, like you were saying, uh, or it could be recent. It could be these short term decisions we make every day. But realistically, the the biggest impacts, the biggest damages we've had to salmon were. Uh, destroying the habitats where they went back to spawn, the freshwater and inland habitats. Uh, like you said, here in California, the logging and, and the gold mining that happened in, in the Central Valley, the rivers around here, destroyed a lot of salmonid habitat. So I would say that sam salmon habitat has been treated very poorly, and, in, and as a consequence, salmon are not doing so great. But we now have an opportunity here to kind of be part of the solution, have an opportunity to work for positive change. And what is doing not so great look like as far as like the original run numbers and now? Like, well, like you're seeing uh, seasonal runs, basically winter run of uh, fall run Chinook, uh, different species of salmon go extinct entirely or retreat further up north, retreat further up the coast. Um, in our case, uh, I'll use Central California coast, coho as an example. Coho salmon, uh, we're, we're here in the Monterey Bay region, we're as far south as coho salmon go. Um, this is the, the southernmost tip of their range. So what my organization does in part is try to keep them from retreating further up north the coast and losing these locally adapted species. When you say extinct, you're talking about a particular stream's genetic strain, not not a whole species of salmon. Not, not coho salmon as a whole. What you're talking about uh, with Central California coast coho is something called the distinct population segment, which is uh, genetically important to maintaining the species as a whole. Um, so agencies, scientists, uh, fisheries biologists have gone through and said, this is a critically important supporting population of coho salmon. And if we lose this, there's a good chance we're, we could, it's kind of like the first domino to fall in coho salmon going extinct. And so that's where we're kind of making the stand and trying to say, this is this is not a species we're going to lose. And do we have any kind of sense of numbers? I know it's hard to count fish. It's almost as hard as it is to count pebbles or stars or anything like that. But how do you count them? And what's your best estimate on the numbers then, like in the original numbers, if we can make a guess, and um, percentage down or even numbers now? Well, you uh, in the past, you had species, populations of coho in the San Lorenzo River. You had speed populations of coho further up in the North Coast streams that were self-sustaining, uh, probably in the hundreds, if not thousands of fish of adult fish returning where they were uh you know they didn't need humans to kind of help them get along they spawned and, and succeeded just fine naturally so in uh, the thousands in the thousands in mm -hmm. some cases and again there there are these are seasonal and uh cyclical species kind of by the three-year cycle in the case of coho um that that really change with those time frames so they could be doing very well one year and a little more poorly the next and that doesn't necessarily have to be tied to, to human influences they are cyclical so the thousands were back then? Back then. Mm, so what are know, they now? We're talking about, um, in the case of the San Lorenzo, 
Coho, Central Coast Coho are functionally extinct, there's a chance that you will still find Coho salmon in the San Lorenzo. Um, they are probably still there, but as far as a, a population metric, they still look for them and don't really find Coho salmon all that much. Uh, further north up the coast, where you're looking at where our restoration effort is focused on the North Coast streams like uh, Scott Creek and, uh, you know, going up north to Pescadero and further further up the coast, they're doing a little better. So there are still naturally returning coho salmon to Scott Creek, and uh, th that's something that we depend upon to, to fight the, the extinction, the local extinctions. We need those naturally returning ones. We can't really uh, restore populations in the San Lorenzo if they're not there. Right. You need some, some genetic stock to right. work, work from. We want to talk more about the technical end of how you're doing that in just a moment, but I'd still like to stay with a bird's eye view right now, or hopefully not eagle's eye because they eat salmon, but <laughs> the bird's eye view of fish is that we had, you know, healthy salmon runs um, sure. up until what, about 1900s? Or I would say you you started to see the collapse of Pacific salmon species once the habitat changes associated with European settlement started to take hold. So probably in that, um, like you're saying, the early 1900s, the late 1800s when we came out here and started mining gold and cutting down all the trees, um, the fish were probably still doing okay because, again, they were multi-year species. They were getting out to sea and then living their lives out there. It's when those fish all came back and said, you know, there's nowhere for me to spawn or I can't, there's a dam built over the San Joaquin or something like that. Uh, so shortly after those large scale habitat degradations is probably where you started to see the collapse of a lot of California salmon species. It's like if you came back and you lived in paradise, for example, California, and you came back and your house wasn't there anymore. Very similar. You yeah. could not raise your children there. Right. And as I understand it, salmon have to have a gravelly bed at the very top of the stream. So if you put a dam way down low they can't get to where they spawn they can't spawn in deep waters right right so uh salmon need kind of a particular ha suite of habitat conditions to really succeed um and part of that substrate part of that's the the water quality and the condition um but really the one that's the most important and the one that you just hit on is, is access they have to be able to get to the stream in the first place um and a lot of people probably know what the the central valley looks like in the case of the san joaquin it's not accessible to anadromy in a lot of places. So you functionally cut off entire runs of salmon. Um, and that's, that's played a major role in, in the decline and collapse of a lot of species. Well, the Army Corps of Engineers built a lot of big dams back in the last century. It was a big dam building time, right? So that was one of the big ones mm -hmm. that cut them off from their breeding grounds. And one of the interesting things you were telling us earlier is that uh, some dams are slated to be dissembled, uh, broken down uh, in the next couple of few years. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. sure. So that's that's great news for anyone that, that's interested in, in free-flowing rivers and salmonid conservation. The Klamath River, which was historically one of the, the largest salmonid runs and the Pacific salmon domain um, is going to, again, be a free-flowing river. The dams are coming down on the Klamath and here in hopefully by 2021 we're going to start to see the traction of the actual uh, free-flowing Klamath again where you have um, you know the the furthest south population of massive salmon runs and that's that's exciting to hear about and wow. you know it kind of gives you hope for a lot of different places because the Klamath was an entrenched hydropower facility you know there were several dams there many dams on on the Klamath are coming down it's not this just one and what was the final power lever there? I mean, we always think that these things are insurmountable, but um, somebody prevailed. Was it the tribal so, yeah, community? Tri yeah, tribes played a huge role in it. Um, fishermen, the sports and commercial fishermen, um, basically bringing hydropower companies
to the table and also enforcing endangered species legislation saying that you are that these agencies have a legal mandate to keep salmon populations from going extinct and in the case of tribes a, a federal treaty uh, that obligates them to do so. So that really helps to have some kind of uh, in-place legislation to twist arms. It's always more difficult to go in and, and try to to write new regulations and, and, and enforce those after the fact, when we can go in and say, no, you, you are supposed to have this X number of salmon in this river for this tribe or this commercial fishery, it's easier to do. Right. Well, that's encouraging. And let's hope that the people that are presiding over the EPA right now don't do much more to weaken that legislation that is protecting our salmon species and other species before they are drummed out of office, we hope, by their own misdeeds. I should remind our listeners that you can get in touch with us uh, during this interview uh, by emailing us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com or you can go on Facebook and just enter the words Planet Watch Radio. So uh, our guest, Ben would be interested in hearing from you and Tommy's scanning the computer to see what's coming. Yeah. So we were talking about dams a minute ago. That's just one of the barriers and you said habitat loss. It seems like what you said about mining and also logging are the two things that kind of did in the salmon in California and probably in other states as well. So Besides the dams, those are the three big... Those are, those are habitat loss. That's kind of like the big over... All three of those are functional habitat loss. And it would be tough um, for us to engineer a better salmon extinction mechanism than we had here in the early 1900s, late 1800s, when you have yeah. the hydraulic mining and the large-scale loss of riparian cover and large woody debris. Um, you're taking every single life history stage's needs from a habitat standpoint and eliminating them from it, the cobble for the eggs and the juvenile fry to the large woody debris for pools and rearing habitat. Um, like I said, you'd be hard. Pre- we, we tried to take everything we could and, and in many cases were successful, but uh, these fish are hanging on in a lot of uh, streams and that's, that's encouraging. And they need our help. Uh, one of the things you mentioned briefly um, was logging. That was one of the habitat losses. And, and interestingly enough, the coincidental happening of the San Francisco earthquake, which burned down most of San Francisco as a secondary result. Um, They logged the Santa Cruz Mountains, where we're broadcasting from, to rebuild San Francisco. So right about that time, after the mining had finished up in the 1860s, played out completely, only about 40 years later you have a wholesale cutting down of almost all the redwood forest of Santa Cruz County. Right. Part of, part of the heartbreaking thing about that is that that wasn't cut for timber in, in many oh, cases. Really? That was cut to go to the, the lime kilns to make cement. So they cut these old growth, you know, ancient redwood trees to, to, to make cement. And that's a, that's a real heartbreaker. Yeah, <laughs> burning old growth. And now we would think of that as kind of sacrilegious, but back then it was just fuel. Yeah, yeah the pictures tell the story quite well. So the species, as you said, is not endangered as a whole, the coho. It's just endangered in these streams that you're working in. But it could be if, if that population keeps going down north to sure. south. Sure. So, so coho salmon uh, as a species are not endangered. Uh, it, it, in California, they are endangered. The central California coast is the endangered sub, subpopulation under the National Marine Fisheries Service. So it is just a subpopulation. But again, uh, these have been a lot of really... Um, deeply involved informed genetic studies have gone into saying this is a critical supporting component of the population as a whole. 
Yeah. And salmon are not just in California. They're obviously in Alaska. We buy them in the store coming from many different places like North Atlantic. Right. Yeah. Salmon are definitely part of California's identity. But if we are kind of at the, the southern end of the salmon kingdom, um, mm -hmm. if you want to go up to Alaska or the, the Yukon, British Columbia, those, those are the places that, that really the colder, wetter, bigger rivers and uh, coincidentally just further away from the major urban population centers. Um, if, if you kind of drew a map of where uh, salmon runs are still healthy and where a lot of human development has happened, it's almost like they, they are directly inverse. They're away from each other. So, you know. We haven't learned to live with them very well lately. Right. But for many millions of years, at least hundreds of thousands of years, humans and salmon were very intricately connected. Tribal cultures are built around them. That's where the totem poles show salmon and eagles. And right. And that's, that's part of what my organization is trying to do is to, to interact, have humans interact with salmon in a positive way, to be part of the solution. Uh, so long we've been part of the problem or at least um, ignorant to the problems that are faced by salmon. And we're trying to be uh, part of the answer, be informative to the public and helpful to the species. If you just joined us, we're talking to Ben Harris. He's with us on Planet Watch, and he's the executive director of the Monterey Bay Trout and Salmon Project, or is that salmon and salmon trout? Salmon and trout, but there it's... We, uh, got it right. <laughs> and he's trying to bring back salmon populations. So let's get into the how you do that. I know that it took millions of dollars to try to get a few condors back out into the wild when they were effectively extinct here on sure. the Central Coast. Uh, still going on. Mm -hmm. There's only like a 300 of them out there, which is amazing. There's a few more of the salmon, maybe. Mm -hmm. So is. how do you do this? Well, what's your how process of getting them back out there? So in the case of coho salmon on this part of the coast, what we do is something called a captive broodstock program, which uses uh, adult fish from the Scott Creek that are natural returns from Scott Creek, uh, fish that are kept at our hatchery uh, in, the water, in the Scott Creek watershed, and fish that are kept at a hatchery on the Russian River. And we kind of, uh, we take a genetic parentage matrix. Uh, what's, it's kind of a broodstock pairing to get the best, most diverse pairings of, of parent salmon to create the most diverse offspring and the most locally adapted offspring. So we kind of take fish from these three different southernmost parts of, the, of this central California coast uh, and pull them together to create these locally adapted diverse coho salmon in the hope that it's, it, counterintuitive, but we would ideally like to not be running a conservation hatchery. Uh, the goal of the conservation hatchery is to put itself out of business. Wouldn't we, that be nice? Right. Now, are the ones raised in the Russian River, do they come back to the Russian River? Or? So, in most cases, salmon return to where they were raised through smolt and juvenile, through their juvenile life cycle. So, yeah, in most cases where they're reared at the hatchery to smolt stage, they return there. Um, in, in the case where they're adults, uh, we're spawning them at the captive broodstock. They aren't returning. They stay at the hatchery. Kind of like time. Gen Z. They just they keep coming back. Right. Yep. <laughs> the boomerang generation. Yep. Yep. Well, that's what you want them to do. Uh, so they spend three years out in the ocean. Um, talk about how that even happens biologically. It's just weird to think that a freshwater fish can turn into a saltwater fish and then come back up a freshwater river. I, I always thought that was just seemed it's a, it's illogical. An, it's an incredible change, <laughs> and it's something that, um, you know, it's not exclusive to salmon. Anadromy is not exclusive to them. Uh, there, are, there are species on the East Coast, herring and, you know, eels and all kinds of things that go out to, in the case of eels, they actually spawn in the salt water and come back to the freshwater to be adults. That's Whoa. called catadromy instead of anadromy. Wow. But in the case of... Because they're going to be a quiz. You're going to yeah, tell us quiz, what quiz catadromy at the end. means. Quiz at the end. Take notes. So. <laughs> Never heard that word. But uh, in the case of salmon, anadromous fish, fish that are going for spending their, their 
juvenile years in or juvenile phases in freshwater and then migrating out to the marine environment for adulthood and to grow and then back to the freshwater environment to spawn that's that's the case of true pacific salmon and in the case of things like chinook and coho they're uh, they spawn once and they die they kind of have one shot to hit that optimal habitat and, and have a successful brood year uh, in the case of steelhead they're uh, they're something called iteroparous which means they can come back and spawn multiple times so steelhead are arguably a little more resilient to the kind of habitat changes that humans have been putting on salmon this might be one of the reasons you still see steelhead in los angeles county and you know far south california i think i saw one in the big sur river one time it was really mm-hmm. long and skinny and had a funny beaky yeah they if head. uh it, if you saw a salmon or salmonid in southern california it was the steelhead wow. so yeah I was excited because it was long and it wasn't at all afraid of me. I was just sitting in a pool looking around. Yeah, and they go to these places that you would never expect. And how they get up there, too. They have to jump up over waterfalls, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, over waterfalls, in some cases low-hanging dams, up fish ladders. Um, It's it's a feat. And in the case of of Chinook salmon, you've got fish that are are going 2,000 miles upstream in freshwater. That's, That's after all of their marine migration that's after they've been out in the ocean and however far they swam there they're going from the bering sea to whitehorse yukon which is the long way through alaska basically a long curving path through alaska and these fish were 80 to 100 pounds the size of humans so we're we're, we're they are they are gone they are uh those huge yukon chinook salmon are more or less extirpated because the top terminus of their anadromes are, are starting to be impacted so we're losing the the, the huge early run fish wow. and that's that's the thing we're trying to fight back right yeah against here. yeah so what what would success for your project look like well what are you hoping again it might sound near counter, term and long term counterintuitive but uh long-term success for the coho program would be to not have to run a conservation hatchery to where we could focus on outreach and education and maybe habitat restoration but for the time being the reality is with coho salmon on this part of the coast you must have some sort of supplementation program for them to to continue uh, for the time being, uh, there's a lot of work going on in habitat restoration, and that's that's great. Uh, it, it's going to benefit not only coho but all salmonid species. For again, right now we're in a place where coho salmon don't have the abundance to really have the have the population structure to succeed long term. So you have to help them. You really help kind of need them. a helping hand for hopefully just you know not too long, not not a full you know, a century or anything, but we're talking about. A couple generations of fish to where we we start seeing some some natural returns, some good survival from to adulthood in the marine realm. So when you raise them, how big do they get? And then you just do you cart them down to the ocean, or you let them go more, by themselves? More or less, yeah. We take them by truck. So uh, <laughs> then we raise them at the hatchery from from the eggs. So again, uh, adult salmon die when they spawn. So uh, we take the adults and take all of the eggs from the female, and then a cross between four males, uh, the eggs and what's called milt and the males, and we try to create a really diverse offspring group we then take those fish and rear them to what's called smolt stage again where they're adapting to become marine fish uh, and then release them it's a bit you know three or four inches in size they're kind of the, where they start to silver up and look shiny kind of look like a marine forage fish and that's that's a uh, 
something you can be an observable change you can with your naked eye but it's also a physiological chemical change their kidneys are and their gills are starting to change in ways that that pump the salt out from the marine environment they're adapting to be in a saltwater habitat and it's it's incredible to see it's called it, it's not a very scientific term but it's called smultification so <laughs> sounds scientific <laughs> and how do you know if you're successful do, the, do you count the ones you come back do you tag yes. them or what so in the case of scott creek we're fortunate to be working with the national marine fishery service where they have a life cycle monitoring station they have a weir on scott creek where they can count adult returns uh, and that's not um, like the dams we're talking about that are the real barriers to anadromy this is something that that is easily passable in high flow events and is is not a hard terminus to to, to movement for fish um, so that life cycle monitoring station allows us to both collect broodstock wild natural returns from scott creek and also count how successful we are um, and we tag the fish we release with pit tags uh, the same thing that people chip their dogs with where you, you know you wand them and it gives you a unique code so we know if if a coho salmon from our program winds up in a commercial fishery in oregon or something we know uh, so the, it's a the, coho code it is it's a coho <laughs> code and that they have pit tags for uh, salmon all up and down the coast the real numbers game comes into chinook programs where they uh, do something called a little different called wire tagging uh, and that goes in their nose instead of their belly and it's just a strip of wire and they do that on millions and millions of fish every we're not year. likely to find one on our plate are we you because it's only in their nose uh, i if you are eating wild chinook salmon there's a good chance that it was coated wire tagged or raised at a hatchery at some point in its life which does bring me around to you know farmed salmon versus wild caught and and anybody who's shopped for salmon lately knows they've gone up so much in the past 10 or 15 years to the point where most of us it's like a luxury item we can't even afford it especially if you go to the health food store and sure. buy there is 23 or four dollars a pound sure yeah so that, i mean that's that's a real challenge there's two two things i'd like to get in with uh two points i'd like to make with the increasing price of salmon it's that uh salmon and you know these large pelagic predators these things that are uh, pretty rare and and long-lived they probably should be an expensive luxury item um humans would be it might not sound appealing but if we kind of moved a little bit uh, further down the food chain to that kind of secondary productivity. If people ate things that were um, forage fish instead of major marine predators, we know it's a major issue that people are eating, you know, all the billfish and sharks and, you know, salmon are, are pelagic predators too. They, they are a large predatory fish and realistically, um, fish like that should come at a premium. It should be a high dollar item. Maybe uh, they shouldn't be allowed to be sold. Well, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily, I, there are a lot of people and industries that depend on that. And I think that there is a way for us to have a relationship with salmon that doesn't have to be damaging. It doesn't have to be this exploitative. Uh, we have fishermen and particularly in the United States, uh, salmon fisheries are very tightly managed, very well managed. Um, and the, the commercial fishermen, the recreational fishermen who go out and catch them support the conservation efforts we're talking about. So to say, uh, just a hard, you know, shut the door on salmon consumption, you might, there might be some collateral, collateral effects to the restoration effort that, that we're not prepared for. And that's, that's true for a lot of, con, you know, angler and hunter funded conservation programs in the United States. We, we depend on people who enjoy the resource to fund the conservation. And that's, that's true for salmon. Mm-hmm. It, it is a bit of an odd uh, connection. The, the very people consume them are conserving them. And I understand that it does give them an incentive to conserve them, but it also 
to hunt them. So it, it's a very complex kind of an arrangement right. we've struck with them, which maybe we could rethink at some point. I just it seems like if something's endangered or the, about to be, you don't want to wait till it's almost gone to stop hunting so it. The, in the case of what the the salmon that you are eating at the grocery store, uh, again, in, if they're U.S. or Canada caught, it's uh, closely managed to say the least. That is a, a highly regulatory fishery. Uh, gillnetters in Alaska to the, the guys down here, the sanders down here, we we are, uh, salmon are one of the most tightly managed species in the country. So it's it's hard to say that regulation is the issue that, that people are having with it. I think one of the better ways and kind of getting to that second point with salmon consumption, one of the better ways to go about it is go directly to your fishermen. Uh, go to the ports, make friends with someone who's a salmon fisherman, and then you cut out the corporation that uh, is selling it or you know make friends with a distributor someone who goes and, and does know all the salmon fishermen so if you are getting it at the grocery store great but understand that um, those guys would be just as happy to sell you a whole salmon if you just you know it's something yeah. just like community supported agriculture community supported fisheries are a real thing and, and something I would I think will help with conservation and our you know our culture of consumption. I'm not sure people understand the difference um, in terms of the environmental impact or even the impact on salmon of farmed versus wild. So could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so there is a huge difference between environmental impact, but whether between species and between farmed versus wild salmon. Um, in the case of farmed salmon, particularly farmed Atlantic salmon here on the Pacific coast, um, you'll be very careful about your cons consumption of that. That's a, a species that is not native to this ocean basin at all. Uh, they're reared in densities that are extremely, extremely high densities in places that mm, are on top of wild salmon runs, you know, the runs we're trying to rebuild. So in the case of Atlantic salmon net pens in uh, Puget Sound, which was just recently made illegal because of an escapement issue that they had. They had you know, something like a quarter million uh, Atlantic salmon es escaped into the Salish Sea. And they said, so the Washington Fish and Wildlife said, you cannot do this anymore because this is on top of wild Pacific salmon runs. And they're not supposed to be in that ocean they're at not, all. They're not supposed to be in that ocean at all. They're in extremely high densities, which requires, um, you know, you feed the fish in there. There's nutrients and detritus nitrogen that, that falls from, you know, fish feces. Basically beneath the net pens is kind of a, a localized dead zone. Um, and parasite transmission between the fish in the net pens to wild fish is an issue because you have these uh, super vaccinated, medicated fish in the net pens because they're, you know, it's a high density rearing compared to the wild fish that have none of those protections. So you, when a wild fish comes into contact with that vaccinated, just, you know, it's not herd immunity for that wild fish. It's going to catch whatever those fish have. It reminds me of, you know, the giant feedlots that, that cows are kept the, in because diseases are rampant and they have to give them antibiotics. It, so are they doing is, that it there? It is the same concept applied. It is, it is ocean ranching. Um, and there's there are ways for the for net pen releases we actually participate in net, net pen releases to be done that are not uh, as ecologically damaging um, when you rear fish in the net pens on top of wild runs you know feed them keep them there in high densities that's where the real problem comes in uh, there are cases where like our chinook salmon net pens where fish are raised at state-run hatcheries they're trucked down to net pens and then carted out to the ocean and immediately released. There's no, uh, the fish are not vaccinated because we're not holding them for a long time. We're holding them in lower densities than those those ranching operations and the fish are immediately released. So really that's a conservation effort to get around the massive habitat loss and dam construction in the Bay Delta region. A lot of that work is paid for by water users and agriculture in the Bay Delta. 
So you can do net pen releases in a way that is uh, beneficial to the population, or at least it, it helps more fish be out there uh, instead of actively damaging wild populations of fish, which is what happens when in, the, in a lot of the farmed salmon cases. But if you're just going to the store and trying to be a good little consumer and support the salmon, probably avoid farm-raised fish because it logically i was thinking i'm taking the pressure uh, off the wild salmon by I, buying farm fish not so i might be getting some some angry emails about this but i'm going to go out on a limb and say you should not be buying farmed atlantic salmon i don't mind Bars, i tell me the truth stuff. you're the fish biologist i'm just the consumer <laughs> so, out here trying to do the right there, thing there are much better choices in not even uh, you know, again going down the food chain if you want to eat salmon there are better choices than farmed atlantic salmon that that's a low-hanging thing for you to, to okay yeah. and if you're lucky enough to live like we do go down and bug somebody who's a fisher person right we, we live somewhere <laughs> fortunate or you know become one yourself yeah i've heard there's like chartered fishing trips you can go out and yeah, get your own you can and uh i mean <laughs> if the further north you go the kind of the the closer you get to the center of the salmon kingdom if you're if you're willing to to drive up to the north coast and go catch yourself some salmon you can do that and that um I'm always a big advocate for getting close to your food. And I think that if you're the one that's out there catching the Chinook and, you know, killing it and cleaning it, you're going to understand why that's a high dollar business. It's now you hard. can appreciate how it's hard it is. It's hard to catch the fish <laughs> and they're just impressive animals. Yeah. I remember yeah. going fishing with my dad up, I guess it was in Northern California. We you know, rented a boat and went out there with our fishing gear and we caught one and it was so good. And it was also so much more fish than we could eat. So we gave it away to all the campers in that campground. Right. People are very happy. And now you're a conservation minded radio host. So that's, it's important <laughs> to remember that too. So people that, that interact with fishing at a young age often grow up to become some of the, the strongest conservationists, people that uh, do consume the resource. And, you know, again, commer I've, some commercial fishermen I've met are the, the most conservation-minded advocates I've ever met. And that, that's absolutely true um, in a lot of cases. There are bad apples in any industry, and there are people that you know, always want more, more, more. But realistically, every commercial salmon fisherman in California wants a future to be a commercial salmon fisherman. So... You know, uh, I've been just kind of mesmerized listening to your stories and descriptions. Uh, I wanted to, before we have to close out the interview, uh, have you talk a little bit about the education efforts in schools, the Monterey Bay Salmon and Trout Education Project, <laughs> sort of like fish schools. Um, <laughs> and um, But first, I was, I was thinking when you were talking about this radical change, the biological change that the fish undergoes to be become a, a ready for freshwater versus saltwater it's almost it's not nearly actually as radical as the metamorphosis that we all learned about as kids where a caterpillar turns into a butterfly you know you get that chrysalis and right, everything but right. but it's of that same ilk so it, i guess it, it is a metamorphosis it's just not a complete metamorphosis there so the term for the the caterpillars and butterflies that's a complete metamorphosis that's one animal changing into a completely different you know, um, it's, it's got wings. It, it is grow but these, but these different versions of the same fish are almost like right. different so animals. It's an incomplete <laughs> metamorphosis. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about the education sure. project and how teachers and classrooms around here can get involved. And uh, my partner and friend Mary Flodine, who brought 
you to us. She used to do that in, with her classes in, in Watsonville down here. Uh, they would raise fish in the classroom and then take them out into uh, a stream uh, in the Pajaro Valley. Sure. So we're real excited about the education program at MBSDP. Um, the Salmon and Trout Education Program uh, had been going for decades, uh, up until 2015, doing what you were talking about with the steelhead eggs in the classroom. Uh, we didn't have the federal permit to keep doing the steelhead eggs in the classroom, so that stopped starting in 2016. One of the reasons I was brought on to, is to try to get the federal permitting back. And um, we've got good news from the feds that we're, we've got support for, to continue doing the Salmon and Trout Education Classroom Aquarium. So we're, it looks like we're going to be able to get the eggs back in the classroom it's going to be kind of a, a long-running effort because, uh, as you know, we collect these fish and they take years. With the, we, we need to have fish to provide to the classrooms. We need to have the eggs first, uh, and that will kind of be a long-running thing. But having uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service be supportive of these education programs is, is a big step. Um, so really the education program is a it started as a K-12 through program for to get to give give teachers curriculum for outdoor education focused on salmon and trout, really to use salmon and trout as a vehicle to teach kids about watersheds, conservation, uh, science in general. And it's really, uh, it's getting traction with the next generation science standards. We've relaunched the program this past year, just started our first class cohorts this past fall. Uh, a couple weeks back, we took a field trip up to Waddell Beach and you know had the kids do the, the salmon run game and had them uh, do the, the aerial sketches of the, the bridge and just try to think about their impact or human impacts on the habitat of salmon and how you know they live in a place where salmon are. Uh, that's one of the major things for the program is to get kids feeling like the hands-on aspect of this to be to be immersed in the resource and have it be experiential learning to not have this uh, we're going to recite these facts at you and you're going to repeat them back to us that's not at all what salmon and trout education is about it is uh, we want these kids like you were saying to get out on the creek and see these fish swim away and say man this thing this fish is going to go to the Sea of Japan and come back in five years and then have their mind blown because yeah. I, I'm, I've yet to see someone who's who's can just take that without a sense of curiosity at the very least. It's always struck me that any kind of environmental education has to take place in the environment, not in the classroom. You know, they have to get their feet wet literally to mm -hmm. appreciate what you're saying. And I'm so happy to hear you're getting them out in the creeks right. and rivers so they can appreciate who lives there in addition to what they can see with their own mm -hmm. eyes. We, we'd like for them to, to be good scientists and learn these facts. That's an important part of the curriculum. But I would argue that the, the bigger part of this is we're trying to raise the next generation of conservationists. We want kids to think they're part of a bigger system and to recognize the way they interact with that bigger system. Yeah, and it's far beyond just what's on their plate. Far beyond, <laughs> beyond what's on their plate, what they can see and what they, what they know currently. Salmon are a great kind of vessel for this, this content because they, like I said, they connect these habitats, the marine and freshwater habitats, vast distances, thousands of miles away. Um, and they're right here in your backyard. There are, there are Chinook salmon running in Los Gatos Creek. Yeah, that's, that's downtown San Jose. Right so past this hugely right. urbanized environment. It's just right. amazing. And, you know, I, my thoughts go back to a recent article. I think it's been a couple of years. It got published called How the Wolves Saved Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. And part of that study talked about the ways in which, you know, a predator like a wolf, or in this case, a predator like a salmon, can change everything. And I remember reading at one point how the grizzlies, when they took the salmon onto the shore and ate them, they left a bunch of 
fish fertilizer for the trees and the trees got bigger mm-hmm. around the streams but also shaded the streams so that the salmon could have the right it's, temperature of water it was just so interconnected it's incredible. yeah the yeah. the things and realistically salmon cause a lot of productive regions to exist that wouldn't otherwise talking about um you know high rainforests in alaska or these inland desert regions in the central valley of california these are places that would be pretty nutrient poor uh, if there weren't, you know, these these salmon going out to farm marine resources, bring them back and die, you lay their eggs and die, contribute nitrogen and carbon to the to the environment, and like you said, riparian vegetation. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that the the carcasses of these adult salmon also create benthic macroinvertebrates, little aquatic bugs, to to feed the young of the next generation. So the mom dies, and then all these bugs come in and eat mom's flesh and then the kids eat the bugs and it's kind of, it's a little gross but i mean but if you're a fish it's awesome because mom you know you don't know that mom's providing it, all these yeah, bugs it, for you but there you can survive and uh, get to lot, the ocean eventually there's a, there, a lot of people will tell you that uh, fish don't have a parental caring mechanism and that's you know that's kind of is it, it may, maybe it's it's not as uh, neat and tidy as we'd like it to be but that that is absolutely apparent giving resources to the, to their young what more could you give than your entire right, biological yeah. being you know as a as a gift to the future generations many of us would you know do that if we could mm-hmm. in some way you know it's maybe metaphorical that we leave our inheritance but in this case salmon's inheritance is the carcasses of their parents to feed off of amazing creatures and it's so great that you came in to help us learn more about them. Is there any way that the public could get involved or maybe visit your hatchery? Do you do any kind of tours or anything we, like we that? We do tours. Uh, the best way to do that is to either go to our website at mbstp.org or email me at ed.mbstp at gmail.com. We can set up a tour for you. The best way to get involved is to become a member. Realistically, uh, MBSTP is still a membership-supported organization. So if you like things like the Salmon and Trout Education Program, us going out to save wild stranded steelhead or the Chinook net pen releases or even the Coho Salmon effort, that's all member-supported. We, we need the help of people that care about it. So it's also a fun thing to do because you could go it's, yeah, you can volunteer go, I have and get oppor- out in the nature. I have opportunities for people to go get their feet wet, like you were saying. If you want to get on the river, please please get a hold of me. Do okay. you need your own waders? Uh, waders? Boots are generally good. You can, as long as uh, the San Lorenzo is not what we call big water or what I would call big water. So if you're if you're willing to just go on a nature hike, we have we have room for that too. If you want to get involved in the fish work, you know, some hip waders are certainly helpful. Helpful for sure. Cool. Well, we're talking with Ben Harris. He's our guest here on Planet Watch. We have just a little bit more time, maybe five more minutes um, to talk to him. So if you have a last minute question to sneak in, you can get a hold of us at... Radio Planet Watch at gmail.com, or you can go on Facebook and enter the words Planet Watch Radio. Uh, yeah, just before we sign off with you and move on to a little bit of oddball stuff for the end of the hour, um, we're talking about rivers and valleys and, and home, kind of like home for fish, home mm-hmm. for humans. Uh, and you're from West Virginia, That's uh, correct. Yeah. right? Now, Rachel has written. Uh, words to a very beautiful haunting song which we played on this show a year ago on Christmas Eve of 2017 and I urge all of our listeners to go to the podcast at or just our website planetwatchradio.com and check out that show. It's the only time we've ever gotten her to share her gift of music on this show but it was about a river uh, that they had to dam up or decided they were going to dam up 
and I think it was in West Virginia, wasn't it? It was yes. Elk River, Elk River mm-hmm. Blues. It was mm-hmm. the Sutton Dam that, okay. that yeah, the song that is well. about. Yep. So being a West Virginian, you know that know place. place. Well, Definitely. you should check out that song of Rachel's. Everybody should. Elk River Blues. And it again, it was played uh, last Christmas Eve, uh, 2017, oh, awesome. on this show. It's really about uh, lost places and, lo- and how, you know, the creatures that live there are also lost when you lose something like a free-flowing river. And how beautiful it is that in some places, like the Klamath, just to bring it back to the original conversation, they're actually able to bring back some of the things that were lost. Yeah. So uh, in, in fish news in, on the Elk River, actually West Virginia fish news, the candy darter uh, actually just got listed as an endangered species, which is going to be a big win for conservation of that species in the state of West Virginia. So hmm. uh, a lot of work by Isaac Gibson, a little shout out to someone I worked with in West Virginia University. Um, he sadly passed away last year, but he, he did the, the groundwork to get that species listed. And... Um, that's, wow! Yeah, that's a big Bring step forward for full that circle. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Th- that song, the the music uh, was written by uh, an old fellow who had grown up in the Elk River Valley for years, and you know he was gonna miss his home and everything. He wrote it. So. Yeah, it's a very sad tune, and he wrote it in honor of what used to be, you know, the Elk River, free flowing, and it's. Um, his name is Ernie Carpenter, and he's a fifth-generation West Virginia fiddler. Mm-hmm. So that's a, he has a long history there in that place, exactly. The Elk is spot. an incredible place. It still is. Good. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. to hear that parts of it are still wild. It's yeah. nice to know there are places we can think about where these things can thrive. And maybe we'll have that here again on Scott Creek in Waddell and the San Lorenzo, perhaps mm-hmm. even. That's the idea. That's the idea. Well, let's look toward the future in in a positive way as we close this show and think about, you know, maybe our great-grandkids will go fishing and they won't have to worry about how many fish they catch. They can just eat them. Exactly. It's (laughs) it's easy to think about the problems that are faced by, you know, for conservation as a whole, or in this case, salmon and trout in California. But uh, here's a chance to be part of the solution. MBSTP offers an opportunity to do good work to help them. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for coming and sharing your knowledge and wisdom and passion and commitment with us and all of our listeners all over the world of course and uh yeah well i got a little riddle for everybody which uh here's a hint it it ties into today's topic now i actually uh asked this one and left it as a puzzle uh way back uh, almost two years ago at the beginning of this show uh but we never did the answer i think we'll see if we can walk you through to the answer right now so a five-letter so-called word G-H-O-T-I. You might want to write that down. What does that spell? G-H-O-T-I. The G-H is as in rough. The G-H that's in rough. So it's a F sound, okay? The O is as in women. I. So you got your F. I. And then the T-I is as in motion. Sh. (laughs) T-I is as in motion. So it's F. I. Sh. (laughs) <laughs> Ish. Fish. So there you go. <laughs> so answered that one once and for all. <laughs> that spells fish. G-H-O-T-I spells yeah, fish. Yeah, that's another way of spelling fish. Kind of. Hey, by the way, uh, this is Beethoven's wow. birthday. So happy birthday to Ludwig von Beethoven, uh, December 16th. And last weekend was my birthday on Sunday, and I forgot to say something, one of my favorite phrases of all that I've invented. It was... 
Another trip around the sun. Another trip around the sun. Starting a new one and just finished one. Are you going to let us sing happy birthday to you as we go out today um, at the end of the show? Well, or maybe to Beethoven or something. Sure. Okay, we'll so Joe that. and Beethoven. Okay, so leave us the last 30 company. seconds. Okay. If Rachel sing. has a musical idea, we'll run with it. Um, there's a comet. It's the brightest comet of 2018 is coming its closest to the Earth tonight uh, here in, in Central California. It's probably going to be pretty cloudy and rainy and windy and wild and woolly and big waves, big waves. But uh, elsewhere in the country, uh, watch for it. It'll be right near the Pleiades, that little fuzzy patch of stars uh, in, the, uh, in Taurus, the bull. Uh, and, you know, it'll clear up for us and it'll be moving along. Look it up on skyandtelescope.com or earthsky.com. It's called Comet Virtanen, V. W-I-R-T-A-N-E-N. Uh, -E it's the best comet and apparently just barely visible to the naked eye. So this hasn't been a real good year for great spectacular comets. Um, and the king tides are coming. The t for you coastal denizens and us folks right around here, this is the time of year when the king tides come where you have really high highs and really low lows. And that's because, especially when the sun and the moon are lined up with the earth and their combined pull acts in very uh, pronounced ways, uh, you get, uh, and we are actually closest to the sun this time of year. We'll actually be closest to the sun for the whole year, believe it or not, on January 3rd or 4th. That's called perihelion, closest to the sun. So you have that extra intense solar gravity along with the lunar gravity at either new or full moon, thereabouts. That's when you're going to get your king tides. So watch your tide tables in the next few days and watch the newspapers. People will be getting the word out there. And do, did you say when those are coming next week? They're, they're coming in the next couple, couple of weeks. weeks, yeah. And by and, the way, the lineup of the sun and the moon and the earth or any three astronomical bodies, three or more, is one of my favorite words. It's syzygy. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. So when you have a lineup of astronomical bodies like that creating, for instance, uh, tides or king tides, uh, that's a syzygy. And if you got that many letters in Scrabble, you'd win the game. Because <laughs> there's, there's a lot of Z's in there. Yeah. <laughs> so king tide, if they came on a really big storm day, would really be dramatically flooding in some places, right? Yeah, and uh, of course you usually notice the waves more at low tide just because... Uh, they kind of rear up above the water level more than when it's at high tide. Um, but, yeah, every, I should tell everybody, <laughs> you've probably heard that there are really huge waves coming tonight and tomorrow. Uh, really keep an eye on respect the ocean, as the thing says that you see along surf spots. Uh, keep an eye on, I always say keep an eye on the sky. <laughs> now you should also keep an eye on the sea because uh, it's, you know, it, don't it might turn your back sneak on up it. on you. Yeah. yeah, don't be one of those stories that they tell about the guy who had to show off to his girlfriend at the end of the cliff there. <laughs> took a selfie in the process. So. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I heard 30 at one point, 20 to 30 foot waves. Yeah, or even 40. I, I heard. 40. So I heard they canceled. They were going to do the giant Maverick Surf contest, but maybe it was too big. I Which, think Monday they decided it's too big Monday, but Tuesday might be about yes. right. It might have backed off by then. So I heard it's a couple people's birthdays, so we're going to kick it off with mm, happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. 
Happy birthday, dear Joe and Beethoven. Happy birthday to you. And also Planet, also Planet Watch. We're coming up on the second birthday of Planet Watch. We started on January 15th of 2017, and we're almost up to the second birthday now. So this is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and keep your eye on the sky. <laughs>